Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenicast, the weekly podcast dedicated to conversations on faith and culture. This week, we have an interview for you conducted by our very own Alan with Joey Asterbaum. For those of you familiar with late 90s Christian music, you may know his name. He was the guitarist for the band Sky Park. He's done many amazing things since then. He's got a great story to tell, so we're really looking forward to presenting this interview to you right now. If you have anything to add to the conversation you're about to hear, you can do that at irenacast.com slash 49. There you'll also find different links that are mentioned throughout the conversation as well. And don't forget, next week is our 50th episode, and we are going to do another listener feedback episode. So if you'd like to communicate to the show your ideas for a segment or questions or comments or topics you'd like us to discuss, you can get a hold of us in many different ways, and all the ways are listed at irenacast.com slash feedback. So without any further ado, here is this week's interview. Hello, everyone. This is Alan. We are Sans, Jeff, and Mona for this episode, but I am pleased, I'm honored to introduce you to the one and only Joey Asterbaum. Hello. Thanks for thanks for having me. This is Serial, right? On NPR. <laughs> That's right. This is NPR. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Um, you may have heard Joey in the past playing guitar for the Christian band Sky Park in the 90s, or read his work on faith, art, and justice at the Charismanglican, or perhaps you saw him on television marching against the anti-immigration protesters in Marietta, California. Joey has been an outspoken advocate of peace even to the extent of being terminated for his religious convictions, a family man. And from what I hear, this is what I hear, a recent Bernie Sanders supporter. Is that right? That that is true. Yeah, I'm a volunteer with this campaign. And I'm basically feeling sick right now because the Iowa caucuses are happening. (laughs) As we speak, they're tallying them up, right? They're counting all of them. And yeah, that's, that's wonderful. Joey, I'm excited to have you on the show. Not just because you're an interesting person. I do fully believe that all people are interesting and love to talk to people. But I'm excited to have you on because I personally admire you and wanted to hear more of your story and thought that I would introduce you to our listeners. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, no, it's a real honor. You are literally one of only three people that admire me. So that works (laughs) out really well. Awesome. (laughs) So yeah, you you don't so you were in the band Sky Park back in the day, and uh, Jeff and Mona, my other co-hosts, have told me multiple times, do not screw up this interview with the Sky Park guy because they listen to your <laughs> band all the time growing up. Uh, my wife actually was singing um, "Am I Pretty" all day long when she found out that you were going to be on the show because that's wow yeah that literally they, they lived on the central coast of california i don't know if you guys had a huge following but you've you've traveled all over the united states playing music right i mean one of your yeah. one of your yeah, songs we, was nominated for a dove award and um anyway yeah I, we were lucky actually we got to travel a lot outside the united states too really yeah that's and awesome yeah, it was. I am really grateful for that experience. And um, was that you know, all throughout the '90s, or you know, uh, for about seven years, uh, and then ending in 2000. I shouldn't say ending in the year 2000. Um, our record label, which was Word Records, they were a they're one of the major gospel labels. They were trying to break out, so they hired us to basically be a mainstream rock band. 
um, we were distributed by Sony Epic, but then their label was born by uh, bought by Warner Brothers. And so our dynamic changed after that. Tyrone, our lead singer, Tyrone Wells, um, started his solo career, but we never broke up as a band and released another independent album in 2006. And I think we still have an album in us, but we'll see. Yeah, you guys, I saw that you guys got together recently and maybe in the last two or three years. Yeah, uh, we celebrated our 20 year anniversary as a band and uh, it was really a blast. So your band can almost drink beer now, now that it's 20 years old. It's just on the cusp of maturity. (laughs) Our band is legally allowed to campaign for Bernie Sanders. (laughs) (laughs) I just don't know if Uh, any of the rest of them will. So. Well, so yeah, so Bernie said, so Sky Park, Bernie Sanders, anti-immigration, there's so much that I would love to ask you about and want you to talk about. So it's kind of hard to find an even beginning area. And I figure we'd kind of start where I came to know you. And that was when you were writing for a blog you called the Charismanglican, kind of the charismatic Anglican smash together. And yeah. uh, in in your blog, you talked about you went through a period of deconstructing your faith and then reconstructing your faith. And I'm curious to know what was that experience for you? What, what were you deconstructing? Was that your sky park days that you were kind of pulling apart and thinking about critically? Um, and what did it look like to put pieces back together? Well, you know, I've always, I became a Christian when I was age 12 and it was within the denominational, uh, Christian churches, churches of Christ. Um, and it was a cool church too. I mean, at first it was just, uh, I was one of the only people under 60, but as it grew, um, it became like the cool church to be a part of, um, really large church, um, by, by compared to what I'm involved in now. So, (laughs) um, and throughout that time, uh, I've always been a thinking Christian. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm good at it. But, but that I've never really taken things for granted. I've always wanted to grow. My faith has always been very central to who I am. And it's funny because I think if I met, you know, 14 year old Joey, he probably wouldn't think I was a Christian. (laughs) And I'd probably think he was a really aggravating human being. But I take it, you know, I take it that people grow in their faith the way that they grow in other areas of their life. And, Mm. And, uh, yeah, so. Um, what happened is I would say, um, in the mid to late nineties and even a little earlier, um, but especially in college, there was just a lot of stuff that I was learning that didn't fit in the paradigm of my fundamentalist upbringing. Um, I had a very passionate faith and yet even as one of the most involved people in church, I still felt like there was a lot more to the Christian life that I felt I was missing. And it was in the later 90s that I came across a book. It's really funny, actually. And I can't remember the author's name all of a sudden, but uh, the book was called Soul Tsunami. And I think uh, the author's name, first name was Lee. As in like the storm coming yeah. in. And- yes. Yeah. And Soul Tsunami was about postmodernism and Christianity and kind of, these were things that I didn't know about, you know, as far as a postmodern turn. And so that led me kind of down a rabbit hole where I was like, wait a second, people feel the way that I do. You know, they feel that there's something missing in church and that, you know, it's not really connecting the way that it ought to. 
that it doesn't feel authentic or very meaningful or just not meet the world uh, in a way that was very interesting. It was kind of a subculture in a ghetto. Mm. And, you know, that combined with being a musician um, in the Christian music world and not in the Christian music world, you know, playing clubs and other things, I really just felt increasingly guilty about us being involved in the Christian music industry. Really? Well, one of my questions was going to be, did you ever feel pressure? Like, what is it like to be in a Christian band? I don't play music and I've, I've been to lots of like concerts and stuff for Christian music, but do you ever feel pressured in a Christian band to kind of perform your faith or be what other people in the churches expect you to be all the time? It's a, that's a, <laughs> I'm not going to be mean to you, <laughs> is but that a, literally that is such a 1998 question. Is it really? Like, well, it I was, haven't changed since 1998, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, that's not, um, but people who listen to you, they may not know that. Uh, but it, it, it actually, probably there were people like Amy Grant that were dealing with that in the eighties. Mm-hmm. You know, Jars of Clay was dealing with that when I was in college. And so it was a big issue for a lot of people back then there was very little pressure on us i think because we just loved each other so much you know we were very much a band we were not um you know some solo artists that hired backup guys we did not have a changing lineup we loved we loved each other deeply and so there's a sense where we really had our thing and everybody else was kind of along for the ride so i feel like we were pretty authentic in terms of that when we wrote about our faith it was because we cared about our faith, not because of other mm-hmm. reasons. And when we wrote about girls or anger or, you know, frustrations, relationships, love, politics, when we wrote about that stuff, we wrote about that from a place of honesty too. Um, we didn't feel like we had to really tamp anything down. Um, we just went with our own things. So it wasn't, I don't think it was as much of a struggle for us as it was for other bands. The only difference being that increasingly I felt we had no place in the Christian music industry. And uh, in the year 2000, after our album Over Blue City came out, we particularly lobbied with the record company to get out of our contract. Because of the the things that you believed or? Yeah, because I just felt like, um, you know, it wasn't that I felt that we had to change anything about our message or about our art. Um, because I felt we were hitting our stride. It was more to me about not wanting to be part of the commercial aspects of Christian music, feeling that Christian music, you know, probably one of the moments that was very definitive for me, you know, the band, we were distributed by Sony. And in the year 2000, we went to Sony's headquarters in Los Angeles. There we met with the marketing team and other executives. And we played some songs that we had from the new record. We played them acoustically. And it was a really extraordinary performance. It should have been pretty boring because it's people who are number crunchers. And at the time, before digital music, it was still a major label world. People still made their their living selling records instead of touring. And that that doesn't happen anymore, right? Because people are pirates and stuff and steal stuff off the internet or whatever. It's just so widely available. And, you know, ironically, like, I'm not against that. I'm I'm, uh, I'm actually really for it. You can can get Sky Park's most recent album, uh, No Ambition. You can download it for free online or contribute. (laughs) 
<laughs> but but it's not what I'm in it for. And so, but yeah, it, it's been devastating to the record industry. But by the time the late '90s were coming around, the music industry was totally run by lawyers and accountants. It was not about people who really cared about the art. And there were few. Our A&R guy named Bubba Smith. He's um, he's won various Grammys for producing r- records. He was nothing but good to us. And he was in Nashville, and he's like, "You guys have probably moved to Nashville." And we were like, "Nope, we were <laughs> we were Orange County all the way." But mm. no, we didn't. We didn't feel that pressure. But what happened is when we played at the Sony um, headquarters for the marketing people, here are people who are supposed to be pretty cynical about music. And we played a couple of our best songs and we got a standing ovation. Like it was basically a business meeting and they stood up for us. And one of the things, you know, for us, it was really a joy because we really wanted people to react, to feel like our music set them free from bad jobs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not even kidding about that. We literally, we called our style of music beyond employment. And when we were on tour, we would stop at temp agencies and give free albums away. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> we um, that's something that, that's that's some work that you still continue today, right? Aren't you involved in helping people find jobs and things like that? I, I am. Yeah, not at a temp agency. I, I work for social services, so it's with the poor. That's cool. and people who are on cash aid. Yeah, I love it. So anyway, so we played for these uh, big wigs and they're pretty jaded and they gave us a standing ovation. And so there was a little bit of a love fest going, you know, and we hung out with them and, you know, it was really a good thing. And then the record label, their whole marketing thing and how they communicated our music to Sony was so based on just what they knew about Christian music that, um, you know, the phrase that we used back then was they queered the deal. Mm-hmm. You know, they were just too, their thinking was too small and too conservative. They wanted a mainstream band, but didn't want to take the actions necessary to make it happen and really didn't utilize that relationship with Epic very well. And it was kind of the beginning of the end. I mean, you know, we, it, we just recognized that we didn't really fit. So, yeah. There's that. I mean, I, I, I've never really been into Christian music. <laughs> I was going to say that's a shame because we could have used one more longstanding corporate Christian band in the world. <laughs> you know, it really was our goal to be the third incarnation of Petra. So, uh, <laughs> yes. No, <laughs> yes. And, you know, at the time there was this explosion of Christian musicians like alternative, ska, punk, hardcore. Mm-hmm. And we played with a lot of bands um, like POD and Switchfoot. Yeah, we played with a lot of those bands that kind of were breaking mainstream. But no matter what happens, if I'm switching, still to this day, if I'm switching the dial on my radio, I don't have to know. I know when it's a Christian station immediately <laughs> by the quality. Yeah, that's true. And yet, you know, I'm, I'm just being honest. I mean, some of our music's interesting. I love listening to it. But I've always been a bigger fan of music than a producer of music. And I, I just would never be our heroes, you know, as much as I wanted to be, you know, Radiohead and the Beatles I've and Nirvana. I've never written a single song as good as any of those bands. Mm. And and performing was really our thing. We were really good live. I, th- I actually think that if YouTube was a thing in the late 90s, early 2000s, that our band uh, would have just blown up. Absolutely. Um, 
The uh, world would have been very different. <laughs> yeah. Which is, again, not really boasting of our skills. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a skill in performing. Well, we we all loved we all loved your music. I had never been to a, a concert. So far as I know, my wife never did. But like we, we didn't know each other growing up, but we had your guys' CD. We also had other people you named, like Switchfoot and P.O.D. and all of them. All those like and then a lot of the garage bands. You said Scon Punk. I feel like I'm reliving my childhood because I had all these CDs. <laughs> and I think I even took your CD and propped open the CD player and spun it while it was open and like drew on it and stuff like that to make it look cooler. Anyway. Nice. Yeah. So I have this really deep emotional connection to that's um. <laughs> You know, I got to tell you, I never felt it's it's the weirdest thing. I never felt famous while we were in Sky Park. We traveled to Hong Kong. We traveled to Central and South America. We traveled to Europe. For some reason, we had a following in Alaska. So we went there probably six times, which is beautiful. Just a beautiful place. And, you know, we never felt famous except one time we were in Puerto Rico playing at a at a military base. The Pentagon had hired us to do a tour of military bases in the year 2000. And wow. pl- and yeah, it was it was amazing, a, a really strange experience. And it was before 9/11, so we actually we played at Guantanamo Bay. Wow. Um, so not a lot of you Not know, a lot of people have been there. <laughs> right. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. And you know, I, I uh when we played in Puerto Rico, for some reason there were kids who were, and when I say kids, probably late teens, early 20s, there were young people that were Puerto Ricans, you know, but they were basically, they worked on the base, but they were locals. Mm-hmm. They weren't, you know, they weren't continentals. And they, um, for some reason, this group of kids were way into our band. And so even if we played, you know, the biggest band, uh, the biggest crowd we ever played to was in Holland. And it was, it was like 9,000 people. But we weren't the headliner. Uh, but we played three concerts there, and they were pretty wild. But here we were in Puerto Rico. None of the soldiers cared to see us. Like the <laughs> there was like only a handful of people there. But these kids brought all of their friends because they were like, "Oh my gosh, Sky Park's here!" And it's the only. I thought, "Wow, people somewhere know us <laughs> before we played the music." <laughs> So we, you know, it was the only time we ever felt famous. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a couple times actually in the last, like, say, ten years, where Tyrone, uh, because he's been very successful, he was on Universal Records, and now he's a successful solo artist. And even if people don't, you know, hearing this, don't know the name Tyrone Wells, you've heard his music. Uh, it's been on television and movies. It's playing on the radio. He, he's not a household name, but he's done well. And every once in a while, he'll spend time with an up an up and coming band or um, some famous songwriter or whatever. Every once in a while, he'll send us a note saying that they were actually influenced by our band. Wow! And and that makes me feel really it makes me feel really good. Like wow, somebody even cared. And then there's a part of me that feels sad for them because like, <laughs> you were into my band. What is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> that's um, that's your message for all of the former Sky Park fans is that there yeah. has to be something legitimately yeah. wrong with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, hey, that was well, the point though. That was the point of listening to your your kind of music. Is that yeah. I fully embraced having something wrong with me and that's why I listened. <laughs> it's true. I'm, I'm glad that I could judge you. <laughs> <laughs> um no, but you know what? We really were um 
we really were influenced by anything and everything. And so we did not fit a particular genre. We really did not fit at the time because, you know, you mentioned the ska and the punk thing and mm-hmm. also rap rock. So at the top, when we made our best record and with one of the, and with Ed Stacy, I'm one of the world's greatest rock producers he's worked with, you know, uh, the Ramones and, and, uh, let me kill mister. And, and, uh, I don't even know if I'm saying that name right, but the misfits he's played, you know, he produced, um, living colors, Grammy winning album, the one with the cult of personality. And he also produced the smithereens. So this is, you know, it was an honor, like super awesome. We worked with this incredible producer. We made the best record we could. And then everything kind of fell to pieces and we didn't really have a definable genre while, just at that moment uh what was really happening all of a sudden was boy bands and rap rock i mean it was in sync and it was limp biscuit and you guys and chose not just... to break boy band and go that <laughs> direction <laughs> yeah uh, i will say that i enjoy boy bands more than uh, limp biscuit so <laughs> Uh, so there's that (laughs) i will also say that i've seen a movie directed by fred durst and it was good really i'll I'll go on record yeah and you know who was in it was both jason ritter and lead and i'm an idiot for forgetting his name (laughs) but it's the guy uh from the social network Hmm. Uh, um Uh, i for i i don't know jesse jesse eisenberg he was in Zombie Land. Okay, yeah, yeah. From the he was, he was I, just in a great stoner comedy. I, I haven't watched um, Social Network, believe it or not. Even though I run a podcast, <laughs> I have seen Zombie Land though, and I do love that actor. Oh yeah, Eisenberg's great. He was just in a stoner comedy with uh, with that girl from Twilight. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, oh was, yeah, that's right. And it was really fun. I don't think people. I don't think I'm supposed to say that. You're allowed to say whatever you want. That's that's fantastic. <laughs> it was oh, that's cool. really a good film. Like just like Jason Bourne, but with a lot of weed. <laughs> and it was just a very strange and fun little indie film. So that's awesome. Yeah, it was good. So so yeah, from, from uh, yeah. so from Sky Park. Um, I don't know what the time frame is exactly. But you, at some point, started writing for a blog called The Charismanglican. Can you tell us how that began? Yeah. Well, for your listeners, once upon a time, there were things called blogs, <laughs> and people cared. Yes. And um, there's very little of that now. I mean, honestly, you know. There's some, there's some remnants. There's like clickbait every now and then when you go on Facebook and see someone has shared an article that's yeah, outlandish. There are pretty good blogs, um, but I just don't subscribe or read them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know a couple of people who like make livings or people who are um, people who are intellectuals, uh, public intellectuals that blog. And I'll read that stuff, but you have to post it on Facebook for me to know it exists. <laughs> but back when you began, it was okay to have a cult following, right? Of people that yeah. read blogs and you know, and I suppose. Them you start a blog for some of the same reasons you start a band. Like Hmm. you think that you're interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Not that you have something to say. It's just that you think you're interesting. Right. Well, you have something to say, but that's more of a side effect of thinking that you're interesting. Maybe. It's like, I I have something to say and it's important. (laughs) And 
you just put it out there into the ether. You mm-hmm. know, you might as well be like scribbling in the sand on the beach. But it gets better, right? Over time. <laughs> like I, I remember uh I actually reached out to you when I started my blog. Um and I asked you some some things because I I had read a lot of, of what you had written and really loved it. And one of your one of your comments was uh when you do start writing or doing a blog, make sure that you make all your mistakes first because it's an evolving process and it's something that you kind of get used to. So, did, so blogging, has it helped you like formulate thoughts or opinions or kind of structure what you're going through? Cause you talked about in your blog, deconstructing faith and then kind of building it back up. Was writing stuff an important element of that for you? Well, gosh, I think I started writing really after that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the gist is sometime around 1999, I started going through a deconstruction of my faith and deconstruction. I mean, in very broad sense, um, you know, I'm not the technical, like postmodern philosophy, continental philosophy. Mm -hmm. There's a bit of that, but basically just disassembling, taking apart my faith. And, um, and I feel looking back that it wasn't me doing that, but it was God. You know, if I can be so bold as to say that the Holy spirit was like pulling me apart, Mm -hmm. pulling apart my thoughts. But at the time it didn't feel that way. It just felt like, I started realizing things that I believed that weren't true and I started just questioning the relevance of it. And it was, it was an interesting process. At first you're excited because you're like, wow, a lot of other people are going through this. That's what the literature that I was studying was showing me. But at the same time, you know, I felt like I was learning everything I didn't believe, but I didn't know what I believed. And there was a real turning point, you know, I remember I, I was meeting with a friend of mine. He was a youth minister and we were going to go jogging. And that was a turning point. One, because I will never go jogging again. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, that was the last time. Never Seriously. again. <laughs> That's one thing the Holy Spirit taught me. Don't, don't jog. Uh, um, so, yeah. So the other, but I, I said to him, I said, uh, you know, I'm concerned because when I get to the end of this, I don't know if God will be there Mm. that I feel like I'm going deeper into a place where my faith's just being totally taken apart. And I don't know. And everything was up in there. I mean, I think a lot of our listeners can relate to you. The, The feedback that we get is that people have been in that process and there's a lot of fear involved. Yeah. Wondering where you're going to go. Yeah. And there's lots of, you know, there's lots of people who grew up in fundamentalist situations that I did that either because they wanted to, you know, you know, get drunk and screw like, (laughs) and, and that was against their very strict moralistic understanding. They walked away from the faith. And then others who, because of a very basic understanding of science and a fundamentalist worldview that they more grew out of it intellectually and abandoned the faith. For me, there was a philosophical and theological thing happening where it was like, wow, I just don't know why I should or can believe these components. And and you fail to see how they connected in some relevant way to the real right. world. And so they're just like being stripped apart. You know, it's like um, everything up for grabs. I mean, everything orthodox, you know, the deity of Christ, um, uh, the resurrection, uh, the afterlife just really in a place where all that stuff wasn't making sense or, or didn't cohere. Mm-hmm. And um, there were seven years of this. And, 
at first it's just, hey, maybe we should do church different. And by the end, it's that heavy stuff like, you know, what are we talking about when we say God? I mean, you know, and I, I told my friend, I said, look, I feel like I've been going through this for seven years now, uh, which I think is a significant number for some reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been going through this for seven years now, and I I know what I don't believe anymore, but I don't know what I do believe anymore. Mm. And I'm worried that, you know, that I'm in this life where God is pulling my faith apart. And I just don't know if he'll be there at the end. And my friend said something so wise, oddly enough, <laughs> just quoting the book of Ecclesiastes. And he doesn't remember doing this. And it actually was a mercy. He was a very conservative guy, still is. And so instead of freaking out or hating me or trying to talk me out of it, he just said, there's a time to tear down and a time to build. And for some reason, those few words made me think, oh, this is just the time to tear down. And what I'm longing for, for God to put me back together, like that will happen in time. Hmm. for some reason it just got rid of the anxiety of that and it wasn't long after that that i discovered you know what i like to call a handful of authors you know there are five of them and that started putting my faith back together in a way that was fresh and that saved me from total cynicism regarding the church Hmm. a lot of people who went through what i went through they have very individualistic senses of church very consumeristic senses of church or just bailed on Christianity. And for some reason, I was one of those people that things got kind of put back together in a much more grace-filled and kind of, you know, I, I want to use the word orthodoxy, which will sound boring to people. <laughs> you know, it'll sound boring to people, but you, you don't realize when you grow up fundamentalist what how rich and diverse and how open and how big tent orthodoxy is. In the Very fundamentalist, true. you know, in the fundamentalist world, orthodoxy means that you have to believe all the right things. The small sliver that you belong to at that right. moment. Exactly. And everybody else is wrong. Um, you know, and, and people who aren't Christians, they feel it. They feel the judgment and the arrogance. But what they don't know, maybe, is that that's happening in the church. Like the church down the street is is evil, you know? Yeah. Like there's no connection. There's a lot of, div- you know— and fortunately, you know, by by the grace of God, I found these five authors. I found the Ecclesia Project through some of those authors. And then I also happened to accidentally go to an Episcopal church. Hmm. And so what I thought was Christianity was really just a kiddie pool. It was just a, a very modern incarnation in, in, of a very small population in a very limited amount of time in a limited part of the world, basically Western white Protestantism, American, you know? So a key component of what, what you put back together when you had, when you were able to step out of feeling like this was happening to you and start to do some of the good work of re actually rebuilding. One of the key components was seeing a much wider, a much wider thing to belong to. Right. Well, well, you know what? I, I can't say I saw it. First of all, I just feel like it's important to give some some love to those five authors. Yeah. And weirdly, I, I'm in a place now where I'm much more critical of their thinking, but mm. I don't. But I don't care. I still feel very deeply indebted and 
loving towards them because they were like midwives to bring me um, into a more relaxed and graceful faith. That is Um, such a good analogy. I think a lot of us can relate to having people who have helped us along the way. And even though we don't end up being with them, you still feel that connection and (laughs) appreciate them for helping you get to where you're at. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, M- midwives. Interesting. So what are some of the authors that, well, that you well, have? Well, the, fir- the first midwife is Brian McLaren. Generous Orthodoxy and other books that he's written. He's written a lot, right? Yeah, it was it was weird. I read the um, the trilogy that the pseudo-fictional, you know, somewhat uh, related to his life trilogy of a new kind of Christian. But I read them backwards. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, um, but I read them backwards. and. They, um, you're a nonconformist. That's I why. really felt like I was there. Hmm. And, and the thing is, you know, McLaren at the time was very much involved in the whole emerging church thing. And I was really imbibing of like emerging church. Like for a while I was kind of in that realm, mm-hmm. you know, but I think I hinted at already that I feel like it's very individualistic and consumeristic now. Yeah. It's very, it's even more atomistic, I should say, like Hatton. It's even mm-hmm. more atomized, even more split you know, apart in, and individualized. Yeah, like exactly, saying. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of like sheep without a shepherd, and like disconnected from historical like tradition and Christianity yeah. in a bigger sense. Yeah, and I, I don't mean you know because there's always going to be diversity. There's always yeah. going to be change. I don't take it that orthodoxy means you know consistency or just whatever's oldest is true. Um, mm-hmm. But there's a sense in which, you know, the postmodern world is there was a time where deconstructing all of these things outside of myself. What happened is it finally deconstructed myself where I thought, wait, how am I making these decisions? You know, why am I making these decisions? What powers have influenced me and what are the desires, you know, in me leading me to? And is that really the human experience? Are we really just individual monads? You know, without any story, we just kind of invent ourselves. Um, and that seemed like a type of slavery to me, to be honest. That hmm. that seemed like somebody who who really just was incredibly alone. So there are some people that would say it's the opposite. Like having like buying into a story is subjecting yourself and the true freedom to just create yourself apart from everybody else is real freedom. You know. For me, that there's a name for that, and it's called capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> like capitalism wants you to be an individual consumer who constantly mm-hmm. reinvents yourself because then you'll buy it. <laughs> I have to say, this is w- one of the reasons why I did want to have you on here is because your insistence upon the fact that there is something wrong with the military industrial complex and the capitalistic system that we have has been consistent. I, I I would say that I've seen what you've written over the last maybe four or five years. And that's kind of one theme that has always come up um, in, in what you've said. And, and yeah, that's, that's wonderful. <laughs> well, well here, here's, so just to shout out the other guys, the other person was yes. N.T. Wright. From N.T. Wright, I discovered Stanley Hauerwas and William Cavanaugh. And from them, then connecting with the Ecclesia Project and also reading John Howard Yoder. And so, you know, What's interesting about that is how broad it is, you know. Yeah. Mc- McLaren is from Emergent. like a liberal, yeah, liberal Protestant. N.T. Wright's Anglican. Yoder yeah. is um, Mennonite, right? Right. 
Howard Wass was was Methodist, but is now in the Episcopal Church. Really? Um, yeah, he has been for a long while. Okay. You know, he likes to church to uh, to joke that he's a high church Mennonite. <laughs> uh, and then uh, William Kavanaugh being a Roman Catholic, and so mm-hmm. just drawing from these different wells was really helpful for me. But what it also did was it made it placed me in a story that wasn't my own. Mm-hmm. And Howard Howard Wass has a way of saying, and again, I'm, although I'm critical of all these guys, there's still stuff that got its hooks in me. Yeah. And one of the things Howard Wass says is, you know, one of the things about Americans, the American story, is that it's created these people who who feel like they could invent the story. Gosh, now I'm forgetting. That's okay. You know, Take basically. Basically, it's created a people who believe that they have no story and they can just invent a story. But the reality is that each of us, we don't start at the beginning. We start in the middle of the story. Mm-hmm. And I started realizing that everything, it's funny with America, everybody's proud of being an American, but you're in the middle of a story by the time you're an American. Like you didn't have a choice. Most of us didn't have a choice and move here. Like, it's just assumed you're that. And yet, then when we're going to be Christians, we make all these decisions. So, like, it has to be about mm-hmm. a personal decision. Whereas I started realizing that there was something, too, that people have preserved. There's something, you know, it's funny. For all my critiquing of militarism and capitalism, I'm, I think I'm a very con- conservative person in this regard. I really do appreciate what happened between the ancient world and the modern world. Mm-hmm. I really care. And in regards to church, that means that I didn't get, I didn't just become a Christian. I inherited these long decades and centuries and couple millennia where people preserved this beautiful thing in this story and they gave it to me mm-hmm. and they gave me my baptism. They gave me the Holy spirit, you know, in a sense, there's this thread and it goes against that idea that I can just choose whatever religion I want. Mm. Now, that being said, I feel like you can choose not to be part of a religion, but it's, but it's, you know, I wasn't born in a Christian family. In some sense, I did choose it. But in another sense, you know, I was in that circumstance. Some people aren't. Um, and I just want to receive it as a gift rather than have to reinvent the wheel. Mm. And so it was really weird. Uh, and, and a lot of that is being involved in the general Catholic, you know, what I like to call the broadly Catholic tradition, which would be, you know, the three major branches of Christianity, Orthodoxy, you know, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic and Anglican, you know, those broadly liturgical traditions. To me, when I go to church and I pray the creed, I'm not as concerned anymore. Do I believe everything here in a literalistic way? You know, some days I believe things differently than I do the next. And everybody changes. I mean, talk to me in 20 years. I'm going to believe differently than I do. It sounds to me like belonging. And this is something McLaren talked about a long time ago. Belonging before believing. And how you get to participate even if you don't believe in all of the 16 points that the church has for you. Right. Right. Yeah. 
And so you, well, it sounds like you can accept church tradition because you don't have to go through and pick apart every single, just like your five authors, there are things that you appreciate and things that you don't, you still yes. receive them as people who have had a very, you even said um, as midwives, people who have like brought life into you, like delivered you into the place that you're at. And you can look through Christian history and see that all of these people, whether they got things right or wrong, or I agree one day and maybe not the next, you're still connected to them and you can receive them even if you don't fully agree. And yeah, maybe that's kind of a freeing way to look at church history. Yeah. And, and you know what, too, is that you also I don't know if you went through this, but I think for a lot of people, you, when you leave your parents house, you start getting angry at the way that they raised you. <laughs> and you have to you have to come to terms with and forgive your parents for being human instead mm-hmm. of being gods. Absolutely. And so I think there's a little bit of that. Like I found myself in that process, even to the extent where, you know, there's this adolescence when I was involved in like the emerging church mindset, there's this adolescence that just defines yourself against the fundamentalism that you grew up in. Mm-hmm. But now uh, that I'm an Episcopalian, I'm actually grateful that I grew up in a fundamental church, a fundamentalist church. Hmm. Um, I think there was a lot of harm there. I don't think everybody makes it out alive, but there was a, also a lot of energy. They took their faith seriously. And I know a lot about the Bible. Yeah. And and your general Catholic, they're not always going to know the Bible. They're going to know how to pray it. But I don't know. That's just something I'm not better than them for it. But it's been it's something that deeply enriches my my thought world, even though my beliefs about the Bible are just, you know, totally different than it were back then. At least it's kind of I think it's been earned honestly. Yeah. By knowing it. And so, so anyways, yeah. So about seven years of deconstruction, I was almost totally cynical about the faith. I ended up going to an Episcopal church and I, w- I was actually, I was actually leading worship at, uh, I wouldn't say a mega church, but 800, 1200 people, cool church, you know, like rock band, lights, stage. You're, you're a guitarist too, right? That's, right. that's what you were for Sky Park. And... Yeah, and at church I would lead and play guitar sometimes. Mostly I would play drums and uh, run sound. I mean, basically anything to make everything a, a production, you know? Mm-hmm. And having been in rock and roll, I started just realizing how rather than bringing Christ in the marketplace, we were bringing the marketplace to Christ. Mm. And we, I was like peddling religious goods and services. And I was just becoming aware of the high cost of what it means to be a Christian. Whereas in the past, I would have thought, well, that means that, you know, it's about sexual morality or it's about, you know, cursing and, you know, just weird stuff. All the things that you think Everything of. in the 90s. It's about people with piercings, uh, te- like spray painting a wall, right? All those bad things that you have yeah. to avoid. <laughs> yeah. And, and what's funny is that uh, this has been an issue for a long time. My, yeah. uh, my father-in-law has worked in the church since he was a young man. Mm. And he has a phrase. He says, you know, I don't smoke curse or chew or go with girls, girls who, do. who do that's right I've heard yeah that. yeah yeah it's really funny and he knows that that's not what christianity is about and he'll say that and then i don't know if it's just every generation of, of protestants have to deal with that what um, you say so christianity is not about avoiding those things or it's just not about those things yeah it's just not about it, it's just not about what we're not it's about yeah. the love of god in christ and, hmm. and sounds like paul i think paul said something like that right it's not about <laughs> following the law but right following in the and, spirit mm-hmm. and i just 
you know, I've gone through that period where you had, you've kind of forgive who you were and forgive the church that you came through and realize that the whole history of the church has been, you know, a lot of brokenness and people making dreadful mistakes that hurt a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And yet there's this miracle somewhere in the middle of it too, um, that changes you. And so, you know, I went from this sort of Christian that wanted to do all the cool new things to somebody who's really super bored with that, just wants to go to like a boring, you know, Eucharist service <laughs> at the Episcopal church. Cause that excites me. Yeah. Um, I, I need something that is authentically religious, that's strange, that doesn't fit the culture, that isn't marketable, that calls me back to a quieter center and to a contemplative thing and a humbling thing where my own desires aren't what's important, but rather just the acceptance that you receive. Mm. It's things as simple as just saying you're sorry and, you know, and being fed bread and wine. And, uh, and especially in the Episcopal church, you know, I, I don't want to be one of those guys that is trying to peddle the church. You know? Sure. Yeah. You know, I just don't want to do that, but the Episcopal church just really suits me. That's you know, cool. I, I, I just, those simple things can be really powerful. Yeah. I mean, and you know, it's caught a lot of hell, you know, before a lot of the other churches, it was already, um, you know, ordaining people who it's the were hipster not... church. <laughs> they were already involved before everybody else was, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, especially in regards to like, you know, yeah, ordaining women and ordaining gays yeah. and LGBTQ issues. They just yeah. recently were. There's some things between them and the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church recently, right? That, yeah, and it's mm-hmm. and even then, you know, it's just I don't know. It's a really humble place. Let's just say that people there, you can believe all sorts of wacky stuff. And it's okay because mostly it's about praying together. Mm. You know, there's a saying in the Episcopal church and actually in the broad Catholic tradition, but it's really important in the Anglican church and the Episcopal church. And that is Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi, which means the law of prayer is the law of belief. Mm. And so it's not about your beliefs, but that as we pray together, somehow that's more what we believe. Like it's actual fellowship and being in the presence of God, rather than the most... rather than the intellectual assent to some proposition. Oh that, yeah, yeah. There, were, there. Were, it was really funny when we were attending St. Albans, which was our first Episcopal church. There was a youth minister there, um, and not a youth minister like a lot of churches have, like a cool youth minister that they hire. This is like some guy who they give a couple hundred bucks just like take care of teenagers. <laughs> Those are the only two ways to be youth pastors. Just so you know, <laughs> I was a youth pastor for uh, seven years and it was like the big production, lots of, you know, big youth group. And then I've worked for churches where it's what you're describing. It's, it's the, we're going to give you a hundred dollars to teach the Bible just occasionally for sure. Right. Yeah. And so this guy was really interesting. I, you know, I talked to him and I said, so have you always been an Episcopalian? And he said, yeah. You know, I took some time. I went to um, a free church like you grew up in. And I've never heard my tradition called the free church. So I was, <laughs> so I was like, free mm-hmm. church? Like, what is that? What is this then? Slaves church? I don't know. <laughs> and, he's, and, uh, and he said, you know, so he had been going. I, I don't remember if it was Calvary or some other, you know, non-denominational Southern California, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, that's, disconnected that's, the, that's the perfect name for a new denomination, <laughs> non-denominational Southern California, whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, li- I like it. 
Well, I can tell you, I've been all over the world, but mm-hmm. everywhere you go to a Calvary Chapel, it's the same thing in Southern California. Like it's like it's totally a colony of Southern California. That's not a compliment. So, That's not a compliment. <laughs> so, anyways, so I asked him. I said, "Yeah, what was that like?" And he goes, "Well, I really liked it at first. You know, it was really upbeat and and really fun. But then I had to come back. You know, I realized that I liked worship that was more about Christ than it was about the issues." And of course, I grew up in these churches that claim that they were all about Jesus and the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I was confused by that. I didn't know what he meant. This is early in my sojourn. And he said, and I said, the issues, what do you mean? And he goes, well, here, when we worship, it's about communion and it's about all these prayers and Christ is the center of it. And when I went there, it was a lot of talking about like abortion or gays or or morality issues. Yeah. yeah and, mm-hmm. and I never, th- it was so weird to hear reflected back to you (laughs) the very thing that you've accused others of right yeah it was so and i realized that it's like all these bible churches you know you you go to the episcopal church and you got like you know people reading the scriptures actually Mm. and spending all this time in prayer and then there's churches that just you know read little bits of scripture and tell you what you should be doing in your life there's something a little bit cavalier about that and in the episcopal church is a lot more humble I, I just can't sell it. Honestly, it's too strange and too boring and, <laughs> and you got to submit yourself to it. And who wants to do that in America? So it's just, there's, it's, it's totally clear to me why the Episcopal church is dying, mm-hmm. so to speak. And, and I'm just at a place in my life where I don't care. <laughs> mm. Like, because what's so bad about dying? Yeah. you you actually are uh, known now, at least some circle of friends as somebody who likes sloths, right? Like, Live slow, die whenever, that like meme that yeah. kind of has been going around. You know, I, okay. So first <laughs> of all, it's important for me. I, I don't know. A loose end, the charismatic blog, I got rid of it years ago. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I was going to clarify that. It has not yeah, been missing. live, right? Yeah. I sent myself a few links that were to your blog that I've tried to mm-hmm. look up and it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> um, I think the NSA started like uh, mm, keeping it tabs on keeping you. Keeping tabs. Or, yeah. yeah. No, um, yeah, sloths. Uh, here's the thing. Sloth is one of the sedly, seven deadly sins. Yes. Okay. But I think sloths, the animal, like that's a misnomer. Like they're not lazy. They get a bad rap. Yeah. They're the Sabbath animal. <laughs> they really, they're not slothful. They're just like relaxing. And I'm a very high strung person. I'm, my mind's always running. I've got a lot of cares mm. and concerns. Because our family has had financial struggles for years now, there's something about looking at a sloth where a sloth is just going to take it easy and gonna and just when I look at them, this is I'm going to sound crazy to your listeners now. <laughs> I'm I'm literally obsessed with sloths. When I look at a sloth, I feel this peace, like it's totally my spirit animal. He, <laughs> it's a, a religious icon for you and yeah, your faith. It really is. And when I get another tattoo, it's totally going to be a sloth. <laughs> Um, I, when I ever have money for a tattoo and, and it's because like, I look at them and the sloth says to me, he's like, Joey, don't worry about bills. Hmm. Like, don't worry about, you know, just relax, man. That's what sloths say to me. And so, yeah, they really are just like a totem of peace. And I've got them all over my workspace at the office. And- as far as faith goes, isn't, isn't that what Jesus talked about? the burden being light and easy to bear as opposed to something that you have to work and sell. And you you said that before selling church or selling 
kind right. of all of life. It is a hectic pace and something that's very difficult for a lot of people. A lot of our listeners actually have said stuff like that before. You know, uh, it seems related, but I've always, uh, my whole life, I've always had depression between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Mm. I'm not good at buying things. I hate rushing around. I feel like the whole message of peace on earth is bogus. There's no peace. Mm-hmm. And especially not when, when Christmas is coming, everybody's stressed out and just totally bought into this. And maxing hurry. out their credit cards to show that they love someone. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and the thing is, um, until I fell into the Episcopal church and there was more, there was a religious practice associated with it. Whereas mm-hmm. I used to say, Ooh, religion, you know, you know, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. I'm like, no, it's a religion. Yeah. Like the, the religion part of it helps me to have a relationship that's much broader and much deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, slots are kind of like messengers from God saying peace on earth. Yeah. That's awesome. And like, so yeah, just, I love, I love them. And I'm actually so psycho about them. <laughs> <laughs> There's a video. If you look online, there's a video of Kristen, uh, what's her name? Who played Veronica Mars? I have no idea. I'm really bad with pop culture she's, references. She's she's married to Dax Shepard, and she she's in Frozen. So, anyways, <laughs> she uh, Kristen, I, I'm such a jerk for forgetting. That's okay. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes. We, she, yeah, so people can check she's it out. Obs- she's obsessed with slots, mm-hmm. and she was on Ellen. And if you just look up Ellen. And Kristen and slots, you'll see this video <laughs> where she has this epic meltdown where she's like curled in a fetal position, having a full on panic attack because she realizes that a sloth is going to come into her house. <laughs> what? Because her. Oh, she's excited about the yeah, sloth basically coming. Da- okay. Dax Shepard comes home and says, there's something special that I did for you. She gets in- intuition that it's a sloth and she literally curls up on her bed sobbing. <laughs> Because she's always waited for that for her whole life. And that sounds insane. <laughs> and I watched that video and I wept. You're like, I, I'm the same way. <laughs> I know. I was like, there's more of us. <laughs> it's not just you. <laughs> yeah. So slots seem to be having kind of a cultural moment. Yeah. Um, I don't know why, but it's like if there's ever one single sloth thing that you see, 20 people have messaged it to me on Facebook. <laughs> I've done that. <laughs> Yeah, and it's and I don't want to be mean, uh, <laughs> so I'm always like, yeah, nice, thanks. It's the complete I, opposite of the uh, like Protestant work ethic. The whole like you have to earn your place, and I don't know. There's the the whole message that we've confused with the gospel or with even the point of life, and it strikes at the heart of that. So I appreciate it a lot. <laughs> Dang, you just got real deep about slots. Are you sure you're not crazy about slots? Like I, I might be. I don't, I don't know. They're a little scary, like the long fingers. I don't know. So uh, there, there's two more things be, before we before we wrap up because there's there's two more things I did want to talk about. You were on. You wrote something for Rage Against the Minivan about your time in Marietta, California. I think it was probably two years ago, maybe longer when. There were pr- a prison in Texas was overcrowded with illegal immigrants, people who had been arrested, families, kids who had been put in this detention facility, and they didn't have enough space or they didn't have enough like heaters or food or 
whatever provisions. And so they were shipping people in buses to California to be in a different detention center. They would still be detained, but they would be sent to California. And the entire town, basically, with the mayor, showed up to protest the buses coming into their town. And you went there with actually protest banners and stuff, but not for that same reason, right? Yeah. I wanted to have a counter protest of love. Here's a, you know, here's something. I'm a very opinionated person. I have a lot of ideas, political. I'm very interested in political theology, meaning the intersection of how society works with like uh, ideas about God and particularly the Christian God. And so I have a lot of ideas, but I'm kind of a loser, like in terms of action. Um, I have nothing to boast about in terms of protesting mm-hmm. or, or, I mean, I've maybe if you knew more about my life, there's some things that I've done that maybe somebody can consider noble. I think it's all very unimpressive. Sure. Um, I'm very much in my head. Um, I'm nothing like my heroes. It's kind of like rock and roll. Like I have heroes like Dorothy Day, Oscar Romero, the Barrett mm. brothers. Uh, you know, those people, I have nothing on them. They're like the Radiohead and the Beatles. And I'm mm-hmm. like, just, you know, tinkering around. But people and who so, inspire you, right? Yeah. So it's very much the same as when I was in rock and roll. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan, uh, but, you know, not the greatest practitioner. But in this case, for whatever reason, it was close and it moved me. In the year 2014, and and there's some bleed over into 2015, there's a huge influ- influx of uh, unaccompanied minors from Central America, mm. in particular El Salvador, Guatem- El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. At the time, I I went to Honduras. I told you that the the um, that we toured military bases around 2000. Mm-hmm. I went to Honduras, and uh, it it was a scary place then, like immediately. And now it's the number one place for murder in the world. So people leaving are fleeing violence for, for their lives. Oh, they're refugees. Yeah, and and it's extreme, and a lot of it is because of the United States war on drugs and their partnership with Mexico for the same. And so what happens is we forced these cartels to take over entire nations. And at the time, it was safer to be a teenager in Syria than it was to be a teenager not in a drug cartel in Honduras. Wow. And, and so it's a war zone. And I guess America, we're not real big on refugees nowadays. Mm. But the thing about refugees is that my family came from, you know, uh, my dad's Jewish. And our family fled the rise of fascism in Eastern Europe. And you may or may not know that the United States turned away shiploads of Jews fleeing the Nazis, and they went back to their death. I'll I'll link in the bottom of the show notes some of the images of the boats being turned around. Yeah. And, and so my family went to Argentina, and then my dad moved from Argentina to the United States at age four. You know, but these miners, these, there's this ugly... Oh, and by the way, Guatemala and El Salvador at the time were like, I think, number three and number five for the same Mm -hmm. for violence. These unaccompanied minors, what that means is without adults. And I I want you to imagine in California, a child going to Arizona unaccompanied. Now imagine going through these lawless places where there's this violence and where their family members may have been killed. And they're coming all the way from Central America to Texas. It's too hard to even grasp. Yeah. Honestly. How many of how many of those died on the way? Mm-hmm. 
how many of those were sexually assaulted. And so they're showing up and, and what you have is this angry, there's just been this angry anti-immigrant, very xenophobic turn in the United States where people are like, I'm sick of Mexicans coming to take my job. Well, first off, you know, that was presidents Clinton and Bush that shipped your jobs away. It wasn't some Mexican. Mm, that's well and said. T- and two, these are not Mexicans. <laughs> these are these are little Guatem- Guatemalan children with nobody who are fleeing because they're because their parents can't protect them or because their parents have been murdered. You know, they can't be forced into prostitution and forced into the drug trade. They got to escape. And so they come to the United States and all of a sudden you have all these white you know, these angry white working class people yelling at them and saying that they're not welcome. Yeah, and so liter- kind of, literally yelling at their bus that yeah. they've already been detained. They've already been put in prison or in jail right. and they're on a bus being shipped to another place, but they're not even welcome at that other jail yeah. because yeah. there's people standing in the street blocking the buses. Yeah, it was merciless. And mm. and I, I, I don't want to judge too hard because what's happened is especially since the 90s, and it's bipartisan, but you know what's happened since the 90s is that I, I really think that there's a couple of pressures on working class white people in the United States. One is their income has gone down, their jobs have gone down, their jobs have been shipped away, there's been unemployment problems, and then, and then people have taken advantage of the fact that then there's these other people coming in mm. that get help. Uh, or that, you know, their place in society is slipping and that's a very frightening thing. And it's, you know, right now it's very easy to call that the Trumpification of the United States. <laughs> you know, you have to ask, who does it serve to fear to fear and hate other poor people? Yeah. Who does it serve? It serves people who are in positions of power. That could be said over and over and it still wouldn't be said enough. Yeah. And so they're trapped by their own bondage too because they don't know how to release themselves from those problems as long as there's a scapegoat Hmm. as long as the the answer is to reject refugees to put up walls then guess what those aren't the people that are actually causing your problems and and i'm really sensitive to it because of my family fleeing nazi germany Mm -hmm. and fleeing eastern europe as the as the nazis spread across the land my other grandmother on my mother's side was a a wasp, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant mm-hmm. in Europe, and her father was a member of the Nazi party. So I have both Nazis on one side and Jews fleeing the Nazis on the other. And that's a that's a pretty good American melting pot type <laughs> of background. So if I contradict myself, just think that's my heritage. <laughs> it's just the stories that you belong <laughs> to. <laughs> exactly. Um and so you know, that happened there where they would scapegoat gays, gypsies, Jews, and anybody really who didn't fit in. And the thing is that sort of force in a large group, it becomes a demonic force. Mm. It becomes a power that is larger than any one person's moral decisions. And everybody gets swept up in a very destructive hate that ends up um, ruining everybody's lives. Because nobody would say they hate someone that they don't know. Yeah but they are a part of the the bigger whole that is something bigger than them. Yeah. So the gist was that, you know, I, my wife, my son and a friend and an older lady from church, we went there just to be some sort of peaceful counter protest. All we did, you know, who knows if it does any good. We made signs. I brought my guitar and we sang songs like Jesus loves the little children Mm. or Lord make us instruments of peace. And it was a little overwhelming because 
you know, here the people of Murrieta and Temecula and Menifee, you know, they petitioned federal dollars in order to have these jobs, to have this, um, you know, immigration center. And then when it's actually called to do its job, uh, everybody freaks out and starts like basically terrorizing these poor people. Yeah. And for me, I, I think the ultimate thing is this. My allegiance is is first and foremost to Christ and to his church, because I actually believe that the church is called mm. as a people of God. I don't care about the border as much as I care about the, the, the stranger. I just don't. Mm. And I don't think you can. If you are a believing Jew or a believing Christian, you know, Leviticus 19.26, you know, you need to treat the alien as if they were a stranger. Mm-hmm. Y- you know, the whole loving your neighbor as yourself. We need to remember that, you know, that Jesus himself living in the Roman Empire, you know, that was the largest empire that the world had seen to date. And Jesus was the refugee. He was on the edges and the margins of that empire to the extent that he was basically killed um, in a political execution. And so the idea that in America somehow uh, Christianity has been aligned with some of these malign, some of these malignant, I'm really afraid, especially with American Protestantism. But you know what? There's some Catholics and there's some Episcopalians. It's across the board. Christianity in America has somehow got Christianity in America conflated. Mm -hmm. And they don't realize that, you know, they'll put a not of this world sticker on their truck. (laughs) And I did that, by the way, on my truck. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I saw a T-shirt that was a not of this world T-shirt mm-hmm. that had like the American flag and like a ribbon like, about <laughs> supporting our troops. And I'm like, what part of not of this world do you not understand? Because mm. that that is a reference to citizenship, right? I yeah, mean, like, that's that's what the discussion was about. That that little saying came from. Oh, absolutely, yeah. mm-hmm. absolutely. And again, you know, you don't want to judge too hard, but. Well, it I is something you've ju- seen from or came I, from in the past. Yeah, I don't want to judge too hard because th- this is where I was. I mean, I voted for George W. Bush. Mm. Can and, you say that like three more times? Just like so get it really clear. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I've repented. Um, <laughs> um, but I'm, you know what I'm really gl- glad for in becoming an Episcopalian was the idea that, you know what, there's a lot of other Christians in the world. Like, there's Christians in China. It's mm. th- There's more Christians in China than in the United States. Hmm. Um, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, they don't care about, they don't, there's nobody in the Roman Catholic Church becoming atheists because, because of evolution. They understand that evolution is a, a scientific theory hmm. and that the Old Testament is a religious book that is meant to be interpreted um, in light of its history and, you know, but American Protestantism is just stuck in this modernist mindset. And similarly, mm. you know, when you're a Roman Catholic or an Anglican, you can go to a church anywhere in the world and you can participate, even if it's not in your language. Yeah. There's something that binds you together. And for you, that's the prayer. That's the Eucharist. That's the actions of being the people of God that kind right. of transcend the language. Yeah. And so for, for me, that's, that's our citizenship. So mm. I have an allegiance it is disgusting to me um, that, I mean, when you think about World War One or World War II, I, I think the last century, everybody thinks that liberal democracy saved the world from religious wars. I don't believe that at all. I believe that 
I believe that mo- the modern age is most filled with blood. I mean, you got to think the world's foremost liberal democracy murdered entire cities in Japan, mm-hmm. you know, killed civilians. And and yet when, you know, if Muslims come here and kill 3000 people in an attack a decade ago, everybody just blow, you know, we go into the longest war in U.S. history. Yeah, it begins a protracted decade and a half of yeah difficult things it's just a never-ending cycle of violence Mm -hmm. but man i mean it wasn't anything to drop a nuclear warhead in nagasaki and i've been there and nobody thinks about it because they think oh well it's for the greater good and it hastens the end of the war but But you know that's the same (laughs) it's hard to hear that because that's the same justification for terrorism is that yeah (laughs) you know we're affecting the, the greater good yeah, it really is. I don't. I, I don't see the difference. I, I am okay because I'm a Christian. I'm perfectly happy with people dying for their beliefs. Mm. If anybody wants to die for their beliefs, I'm fine. The problem with 9/11 was not that people died for their beliefs; it's that they killed for their beliefs. Absolutely. And the problem afterwards is that they've been killing for their beliefs ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 frankly, the United States killed a lot more for their beliefs than any of them have. Mm-hmm. And I just don't believe killing for your beliefs is right. Um, it's a real, you know, you mentioned me getting kicked out of a church because of my beliefs. Uh, you know, the final straw, I, I had let them know from the beginning that, you know, that I was there to participate, to help lead worship, to support the prayers and praises of the church. But I will not engage in any liturgies of nationalism. Mm. Because when we come around the table, the communion table, that has no nation other than the, the heavenly country. Mm. And so what happened was on that day, they baptized a young man basically because he was enlisting that afternoon. Mm. And there was a prayer offered that was basically for, you know, basically that he would do well in his duties. And for me, I'm like, at the end of every service, we say, you know, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. I can't say go in peace to love and serve the Lord and at the same time say go in war and in violence to love and serve your country. Hmm. Those are totally incompatible because I believe in a God, you know, what I see in Christ and everybody's going to argue with this, you know, but the gist of it is that what I see in Christ, the fullest explanation of who God is, the very image of the invisible God that no one has seen the father. But God, the son who is close to the father's heart has made him known. Mm. When I see Jesus, I see a God that would rather suffer violence than cause it. And it happens over and over again. It's his explicit teachings throughout the entire gospel. It's the, it's the underpinning of his entire career. And eventually he's crushed. Basically, uh, that's the real controversy is that God would choose to do that. And God would strike first. Yeah, so when Jesus tells Peter, the only innocent victim in the world would have been Christ. And when mm-hmm. Peter tries to defend him, Jesus says, no, put away your sword. You know, it's just, that's something I can't let go of. And I can't say that there's some universal principle that some poor people somewhere are being put upon and they sure. pick up a rock. I- I'm not going to make that. But what I can say is this, is that what that shows me unequivocally is that when God is faced with human violence, what he does is he goes and he accepts it and he accepts mm. it upon himself rather than dish it out. And so people can ask you all sorts of questions. What about the old Testament? God killed all these people. I don't believe that, you know, people will write me off because of that. That's well, fine. actually history itself shows. And 
people like Pete Enns have said that like the genocidal stuff that you see actually didn't happen the way that it says it happened. There are stories of origination and identity that, yeah. Anyway, that's just, that's totally. Yeah. Aside. But, all, but also people will talk about, you know, things in the new Testament and this, that, and the other thing. It just, to me, it just doesn't matter. You know, same thing with Paul, our struggles, not against flesh and blood. When he talks about the mm. weapons of our warfare, there are things like truth, faith, the sword of the spirit. He basically is saying like, our weapons are not the weapons of the world. Yeah, these are our weapons, as in not the other ones. Yeah, not the other <laughs> yeah. ones. So for you, it, it really is Jesus that you look at, and Jesus that the picture of God that seals the deal for you. Man, there's so much yeah. more that I would like to ask you about, especially the idea of not holding on to um, like a, a rule across the board for all time that nobody can commit any sort of violence. Like that's something I've been thinking about lately because I'm a pacifist, and that has lately come up in I've been thinking about whether that's fun my fundamentalism just in a new way or not um mm. a, a, anyway that's an interesting conversation and there's so much more but we have to wrap up and I just wanted to say thank you so much Joey for coming on here talking about Sky Park I'm sure some people are going to go listen to your band I hope they do talking about deconstructing your faith and the charismanglican may it rest in peace forever <laughs> <laughs> may it rest in the slothful heaven um that someday we will all be able to enjoy but thank you so much for coming on oh it's been a total pleasure i have so much respect for you i'm glad that we've stayed in touch online and i'm really glad that we got to talk i'm honored that you think my ramblings are even <laughs> worth putting out in the world my apologies to the victims of this podcast and my own ideas but... may they be many <laughs> may be many <laughs> Well, God bless. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Joey. 